So tonight we're in Joshua 6, which I just read for you. And Matthew Henry frames it very well. He says, we have here a contest between God and the men of Jericho. This is exactly what is going on in this passage. Let us remember that it is God who is giving the Israelites the land and not they taking it for themselves. This has been a very, very major theme as we have worked our way through the Exodus narrative, through the wilderness wanderings, and now we're in the conquest narrative. Look, these people do not deserve it. That's been unmistakable. It's also been unmistakable that these people have not accomplished for themselves, worked for themselves, the salvation that they have experienced or will experience. Did the people of Israel turn the Nile River into blood? Did the people of Israel call dark, cause darkness to fall on the land? Did the people of Israel cause the destroyer to go through Egypt and strike down the firstborn sons? Did the people of Israel quench their own thirst with water from the rock? Did the people of Israel feed themselves with manna from heaven? Did the people of Israel cause their own shoes not to wear out? You know, and so on and so forth. Did, as we have made our way through, this should be, by now, abundantly clear. This is God who has brought the people up out of Egypt. This is God who has cared for them and preserved them through their wilderness wanderings. And now it is God who is giving them the promised land. This is neither deserved nor worked by their own might. It is all of grace. I would remind you of how this whole narrative started way back at the end of Exodus chapter 2. Of course we know that this is all falling out according to God's decrees. In fact, He had told Abraham many hundreds of years earlier how it would all transpire. But in terms of chronology and sequence and sort of the human happenings, this story started like this. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Exodus 2, 23-25. Look, what is happening here is that there is an undeserving and impotent people who deserve to be drowned in the Red Sea like Pharaoh and his army. Who deserve, in terms of what they have earned, to, to simply be left in slavery. There is no obligation on God's part here whatsoever. They are impotent to rescue themselves from the situation that they are in. But what do they do? They cry out to God. They cry out for help, according to the end of Exodus chapter 2. And what does God do? God hears, God remembers, God sees, and God knows. This is what we read at the end of Exodus chapter 2. And so, in terms of the, sort of the human causation, if you will, in the chain of events, this whole thing starts with a cry for help. 
And in comes God to the rescue. Sending Moses in to take the people of Israel up out of Egypt. And to bring them through the wilderness. And to bring them into the promised land. They are here by grace. They are here simply because they cried out to God for help. That's why they're here. So who is conquering this city? Really, ultimately, it's not the Israelites. Really, ultimately, who is conquering this city is God. Thus, Joshua says in chapter 6 and verse 16, Shout, for the Lord has given you this city. Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. This is our first point this evening. God gives Jericho to the Israelites. Matthew Henry says, No trenches are to be opened, no batteries erected, nor battering rams drawn up, nor any military preparations made. The method here shows that this is God's victory. Imagine, just imagine, that we had some sort of scheme and some sort of plan to go to war with another nation. And we realize that the capital of this nation is heavily fortified. And I say, well, listen, guys, I got a plan. Let's walk around the city. And we'll just walk. And John, what will we do? That's it. Literally just walk. What will we say? Nothing. What else will we do? Nothing. Just, look, we'll go around it once a day for six days. Here's the kicker. On the seventh day, we'll go around it seven times. And then... We're going to get some guys to blow horns. And when they do, we'll shout. All right? And this city will be ours. Right? You see, like, it's, you're laughing, you're chuckling, because there is no human wisdom employed here in terms of the strategy for taking the city. This is not conventional military strategy. Either modern military strategy nor ancient military strategy. There is no time and place in history where this was common warfare. Alright, so the method here shows that it is God's victory. We read also in this passage that the wall fell down Flat in verse 5 says, The people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat. If you have an ESV, there's a footnote there. If you go look at the footnote, it says, Hebrew, under itself. The wall of the city shall fall down under itself. The commentators that I read were all unanimous that what we should understand when we read this is not actually what I have always understood. We all, I remember, I don't know if you guys had that song here in Barbados. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. Yeah? Right, was that? Alright. And the walls, plural, came tumbling down. Right? 
And I always just envision, sort of like how you would envision if a great catapult launches a huge boulder or something and it hits the wall and the wall comes tumbling down. I'm envisioning something like the uh, battle at Gondor and the Lord of the Rings when those massive orc catapults are fired and the wall is smashed. And I'm envisioning that God smashes the wall sort of like the catapults smash the wall and they sort of fall into the city. Perhaps they fall upon people and kill people in the city. And there's this pushing in of the walls. But the commentators that I read were actually unanimous that essentially what we are to understand rather is that the walls basically go straight down. That it's as if they sink down into the earth. Straight down. So it's more like, it would be more like the uh, lowering of some kind of barrier that comes up from the ground and then by some sort of mechanism it's retracted back down into the ground. Something like that is seems to be what is designated here that the wall will fall down under itself. Which obviously is a miracle because even if you were to just somehow exert incredible force on the top of a huge wall, you would not actually find that you just push it straight down into the ground. That's not exactly how physics works. So what we see here is actually that there is a miraculous falling of the wall. This is a miracle, and the miracle shows that it is God's victory. The method shows that it is God's victory, just walking around and shouting. The miracle shows that it is God's victory. The command to march around for seven days was likely somewhat arbitrary in the sense that there doesn't seem to be a clear symbolism, at least that I can discern, or any of the guys that I read can discern in terms of why they were to do it specifically that many times. But we should note that clearly the timing was God's. The prescription here was, was specific. God didn't just say, walk around as many times as you see fit, you know, and after a while, use your judgment, use your discretion, and shout, and I'll bring the walls down. No, there was a very specific command here. Once a day for six days, and then on the seventh day, seven times. Clearly we see that the timing was God's. Now, you would have to put yourself in the shoes of an Israelite to really take this in. But just imagine walking around the city the first day, and you see just how big and how fortified these walls are. In fact, the ten spies who had gone a generation earlier said we're not going to be able to take this because the cities are great and fortified. So you go and you walk around and you behold it and then you just go back to your camp. You would have to be sitting there wrestling with is God really going to give this city into our hands? You would have to wrestle through what the generation prior had to wrestle through when they heard reports of the big cities. Right? And it would be certainly 
not using the element of surprise, to put it lightly, to march around the city each day for six days in a row, and then on the seventh, go around seven times. In fact, quite the opposite. You would be concerned that perhaps inside they were making preparations for this battle. And you would be thinking to yourself, we really should do this more quickly. We should, maybe after we marched around today, why don't we go back in the middle of the night and just do this thing? Because the longer that we let them sit and wait, and we signal our intention to take the city, the more and more prepared they're going to be. And so, what we surely are justified in imagining is people wrestling with the timing of this whole plan. And there is an implicit call for the people of Israel to trust God's timing here. That we're not going to take this the first day. We're not going to march upon the city and catch it by surprise. We're going to give them full notice that we're coming. In American football, sometimes when a kicker comes out to kick a field goal, the opposing team calls a timeout. And they call that icing the kicker. Because he comes out to kick a field goal and he gets focused. Then the other team calls a timeout. And then he has to stand around for a couple minutes just thinking about what he's about to do. Like the people of Israel were basically had that same struggle knowing that for seven days we're going to have to take this big city. They had to trust God's timing. That if they do this God's way, according to God's timing, God is going to give them the victory when He's ready. Even though it seemed against conventional wisdom. So there's God's method, God's miracle, God's timing. What we see, of course, is in the end that God does give the city to the Israelites. In the end, it wasn't Joshua's military strategy that is glorified. When we read at the end of Joshua chapter 6, verse 27, that Joshua's fame was in all the land. It's not because people thought, wow, what a brilliant military strategist Joshua is. Look at this plan he devised to have them march around. That's not why Joshua's fame was in all the land. Rather, Joshua's fame was in all the land because of the first clause of verse 27. It was manifest and apparent to all that the Lord was with Joshua. It was manifest and apparent to all that Joshua was the legitimate successor of Moses, who was the man whom God had appointed to be at the helm of Israel and through whom he was going to work to care for his people. It was for that reason, because it was manifest in the conquest of Jericho that the Lord was with Joshua. It was for that reason that Joshua's fame was in all the land. But it was clear to everyone that it wasn't Joshua's military strategy. It wasn't the might of the Israelites. It was God who gave Jericho into the hands of the Israelites. So that was, the, that was our first point this evening. The second point this evening is this. God had commanded that the city be devoted to destruction. In Joshua 6.17, 
Joshua says, The city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. It goes on to describe what's to be done with material things. But the plain implication here is that everybody's to be killed. Everybody. Except Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house. We know that this is the Lord's instruction because of chapter 7 and verse 11. Where after Achan sins, and we'll talk about that God willing next week. God says, Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things, etc., etc. The implication of that is that this devotion to destruction that Joshua relays to the Israelites in chapter 6 is not Joshua's idea. But this is actually the Lord's command. So God has given command not only with respect to the material things, but God has given command with respect to all the human lives in Jericho. And the way that the people of Israel carry that out is recorded for us in verse 21. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. This is passed over relatively quickly in Joshua 6. It's just put to us sort of bluntly and matter-of-factly because the emphasis is actually on God's miraculous giving of the city and not so much on the details of these executions. But we shouldn't miss here that God has commanded that the entire city be devoted to destruction. They're not to spare cute little babies or toddlers. They're not to spare elderly people in their 80s and 90s who pose no threat to them at all. They're not to spare the women. They're not to spare anyone. They're to kill everyone. This is the plain command of God in this passage. Now obviously a war a practice like this in war could never be justified unless it came directly from God's mouth. We would consider such actions to be war crimes in this day and age. The the killing of civilians along with fighting men and military targets. And yet this is what God commands. The assumption of Scripture is that He who created life has the jurisdiction to extinguish life Himself or to command the extinguishing of life. We don't have jurisdiction to just kill one another as we please. But God who created us has the right to decree when and under what circumstances our lives are to be extinguished. And God has commanded that the city of Jericho be devoted to destruction. That's a plain and obvious point. 
that is our second point for tonight, which leads very naturally to the third, which is this. There are only two sides in this battle, with God or against God. Simple as that. There is no neutrality in this war. There are no prisoners of war. There is no in-between. You are either with God or you are against God in this battle here at Jericho. And all against God are devoted to destruction. Everyone who does not take God's side in this is to be devoted to destruction. But there is a willingness on God's part to be merciful to those who call upon Him. We know from Joshua 6 that Rahab and her family are spared. If this was put into film, we would cut from scenes of killing and bloodshed to scenes of deliverance and then back to scenes of bloodshed and scenes of and then back to scenes of deliverance because that's exactly how the text reads. We see in verse 17 it says in the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab, the prostitute, and all who are with her shall live. And then it goes to verse 20. People shouted, the trumpets were blown. The wall fell down flat. Verse 21, and they devoted all of the city to destruction. Verse 22. But the two men who had spied out the land went to the prostitute's house and brought out from there the woman and all who belonged to her. Verse 24, and they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Verse 25, but Rahab, the prostitute. You see? So if a director were, were artfully and faithfully trying to put this chapter of the Bible into film, we would likely have some music playing and some slow motion footage, and it would probably be a very poignant scene where you would see, you would see on the one hand, people being thrust through with the sword. Then it would cut to Rahab and her family, perhaps crying tears, which would be mixed. Fear, sorrow over their friends and other acquaintances being massacred all around them, and yet gratitude for being delivered and it would cut back to this bloodshed and it would cut back to Rahab and her family being let out and you can almost imagine this is what is happening in terms of the literary structure of this passage it's cutting back and forth and it's highlighting the contrast here that's what a, a scene in cinema would do if it were laid out like that and that's what the way is laid out in this chapter it highlights for us the contrast between those who do not cry out to the Lord for help and those who do cry out to the Lord for help. There is a marked contrast. 
brought out for us by panning back and forth between the killing and the burning and the rescuing, the preserving, the saving. There is a willingness on God's part to be merciful to those who call on Him. Hebrews 11, which is that well-known chapter, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, so-and-so did this, by faith, so-and-so did that. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 31 says, By faith Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient, because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. She believed who Yahweh was. She believed that He had given the land. She believed that He may, in fact, be merciful to her. Way back in, well, actually not way back, but back in Joshua chapter 2, she cried out to this God for help. The only way she knew how, by appealing to the spies to rescue her when they took the city. And how did God deal with this woman who exercised faith in Him? He spared her. When we read in chapter 6 and verse 23 that the young men went in and brought out her and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her and put them outside the camp of Israel. We're not to understand that they were left in perpetuity outside the camp of Israel. Rather, they had to remain out there because of ceremonial uncleanness until such a time as they were willing to become proselytes and join Israel as Israelites. And that did happen in due time. We read in verse 25, she has lived in Israel to this day, which obviously doesn't mean it's 2023, but to the time that Joshua was written. In Matthew chapter 1, we read, the genealogy of Jesus. Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. Jesse, the father of David, the king. So on and so forth, down to verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. She's not left as a perpetual outsider. But she is actually welcomed into the fold. What is the difference between Rahab's story and the story of the people of Israel? You can sum it up in one word. Nothing. Remember how the, I told you at the beginning, how did, how did the, this story start? The people of Israel were undeserving and impotent. They were stuck in slavery in Egypt. Did God owe them anything? No. Could they save themselves? No. But what did they do? They cried out for help. And their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. 
God heard, God remembered, God saw, God knew. That's basically exactly what happened with Rahab, isn't it? Did God owe her anything? And was she able to save herself? Not at all. But what did she do? She cried out for help. God heard. God rescued. God saved. What is the difference between the story of Israel and the story of Rahab and the story of those who ultimately are saved from the penalty, power, and presence of sin by grace through faith in Jesus Christ? Again, one word. Nothing. Nothing. Did God owe us anything? Were we able to save ourselves? Not at all. But there is a willingness on God's part to be merciful to all who call on Him. So if our cry for help goes up to God, God hears. And we have to remember that God indeed has devoted all of His enemies to destruction. A brother read for us earlier in the service that God is of purer eyes than to behold evil. We sang earlier in the service Psalm 1 and 2. In Psalm 1, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. In Psalm 2, all who oppose God's appointed king shall be broken with a rod of iron. Look, this is the meta-narrative of all of Scripture. God has devoted His enemies to complete destruction. But we may cry out to God for help. We may hear of the coming conquest. We may hear of rumors that our city will fall. We may believe what God says about the fate of Jericho. We may cry for God to help. God will hear. Joshua chapter 6 shows us that God devotes His enemies to destruction, but saves by mercy those who appeal to Him and gives them an inheritance. This is what He did with Israel. This is what He did with Rahab. And this is what He will do with you. If you cry out to God for help, recognize that you are a sinner, very much in need of rescue from the penalty of sin. That you're very much in need of rescue from its dominion over you. That you need a new heart to live in. New way to walk in newness of life. Recognize that there's nothing you can do or, or, or we can do together to fix this world and make everybody live in harmony, peace, make everything right again. Nothing you can do to rescue yourself from the presence of sin.
or cry out to God for help. And God hears. God is willing to be merciful and spare those of his enemies who defect from their kinsmen, from their previous allegiances and allies, fortresses, defenses, the trust in him and him alone. When the wall of Jericho fell, we wonder how, how did Rahab's house, which was in the wall, what were the mechanics of that? Did it fall? And she and her family were miraculously spared. Well, it says that the spies went into her house. So it seems it didn't fall. So somehow this wall just fell everywhere but where Rahab's house was, I suppose. This is, this is what God will do for you. In the end, when he renders judgment on all his enemies. If you have cried out to help for him, you will find that you are spared by his mercy, that you're welcomed into the fold, that you're given an inheritance, as Israel was, as Rahab was. So it will be for all who are in Christ Jesus.